Hi, this is James Rudd, the Digital Media Editor at Heart, and today I'm on location at Imperial College London, and I'm here to interview the senior author and lead author of the Orbiter trial. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So thank you both very much for joining me today. Perhaps we can start by asking you to introduce yourself for the podcast audience. Okay, so I'm Rasha Alami. I'm a consultant cardiologist at the Hammersmith Hospital, and I was the lead author on the Orbiter trial. And... I'm uh, Daryl Francis, Professor of Cardiology at uh, Imperial College, uh, or Orbiter HQ, as I like to nickname it now. And could we start, I think, by briefly recapping the main points of the Orbiter study? Perhaps, Rashi, you could, yeah. you could do that for us. So the Orbiter trial was the first placebo-controlled trial of angioplasty in stable angina patients. What we took was a cohort of patients with single angiographically severe coronary vessel uh, artery disease who all had stable angina. And we essentially um, enrolled those patients into a trial in which they would be randomized to either receive a placebo procedure or percutaneous coronary angioplasty for their coronary stenosis. And what we were looking for was a change in the exercise time and symptoms of these patients pre and post their randomized procedure. But what was most interesting about Orbiter was that their after the point at which they were randomised, those patients were blinded um, to which treatment allocation they'd had. So they had no idea what they'd had done and came back and had a series of baseline tests repeated um, so that we could see what the true benefit of angioplasty was in these patients. Okay, and what did you find? So we were very surprised, as surprised as everyone out there, to find that actually while both groups improved and the angioplasty arm um, did improve more than the placebo arm and did improve in terms of their exercise time, they didn't significantly improve more than the placebo arm. Um, what we did also find was that we did find an improvement in the blood supply to the heart in the patients who'd had angioplasty and they had a reduction in their ischemic burden on stress echo and on IFR and FFR, but they didn't symptomatically feel any better than those patients who'd had the placebo procedure. And um, so how would you put this study into context of other trials of stable angina like the COURAGE study? Yeah, so what those studies have told us reliably <clears throat> is with very large numbers of patients um, what the effect on events are, such as death and MI. Um, what those studies are less good at telling us is what is the effect of angioplasty beyond placebo on symptoms. So we had, uh, for example, before us, the ACME trial, um, which is 25 years old, mm -hmm. and very impressive. Angioplasty era. In yeah. the balloon, balloon yeah. angioplasty era, yeah. so no stents at all, yeah. showed a 96-second improvement of plain balloon angioplasty in single-vessel disease over um, uh, medical therapy. Okay. So remember, our study wasn't stents versus medical therapy. I always uh, correct people. And it wasn't stents versus sham. It's stents versus placebo uh, procedure. And they found 96 seconds from plain balloon. Now, some of that will have been placebo. But we thought, I don't know, maybe a third of it could have been placebo. And now stents must be better. So it was an extremely conservative target, we thought, uh, of 30 to 40 seconds. Um, it turned out that we designed the study for an estimate that would be right for 30 seconds. In, um, in looking back, and we shouldn't do retrospective power calculations, but if you do, it's adequately powered for a 37-second increment. Um, still quite uh, uh, conservative. Uh, you, you can make it anywhere between 30 and 37, depending on which, which values you put in. 
but actually all the information is in the confidence interval. Um, once you do a study, there's no point doing a power calculation, especially if you do it wrong, as we should uh, inform the unfortunate chap in Euro intervention. Um, so, so just, just to quickly jump in, so Courage showed us that PCI did not reduce the risk of death or major cardiovascular events compared with medical therapy in those with stable coronary disease. Yes. And you went one step further. Yes, we took a different question. So Courage was looking at events and um, an even larger trial, which randomizes more severely ischemic patients, is the ischemia trial, which is underway. It's got about 5,000 patients. And that's going to answer very decisively the event effect. And obviously, we're all hoping, in a way, that it is going to be positive for death and MI, because then uh, we can just get on with, uh, well, for two reasons. Firstly, uh, we can carry on happily putting in stents, which we like doing. The clue is in the name, interventional cardiologist. But also, because it means we can then have cool, rational discussion about Orbiter, because it will become a theoretical or academic dispute as to how much of the angina benefit is placebo or not, because we're still going to put them in. Yeah. The problem is now people are very angry because they are relying on this. We are currently relying on the symptoms as a primary reason for doing stenting. Yeah. But I mean, I think we had seen angina relief from both Courage and from the FAME2 trial and from trials that had gone before. And so we had been left prior to Orbiter with the concept that we were doing angioplasty in patients with stable angina primarily for symptom relief, and that's why most of us were doing it. Yeah. What we would never really understood is how much of that symptom relief that we see clinically, because our patients do often tell us they feel a lot better, um, how much of that was due to their placebo component of everything that we do, mm. how much of it may have been due to, due to the medications they've been given, and what component was due to angioplasty itself. Mm. And that's what we were trying to work out. On a on a higher level, as it were, did you have much trouble getting the study going uh, in well, terms of the, the sham procedure arm? Was that something that ethically you dealt so with? We get asked that a lot, um, and um, and you know we and as I was going around doing the study, there was a lot of people asking us how we could possibly have got ethical approval. And actually, it's very interesting. The hardest part of getting this study started was getting funding. Okay. And in fact, convincing funding bodies that this was worth doing was basically impossible. Um, they felt that the, the question didn't need to be asked, we already knew the answer, um, that it would be impossible to recruit patients into this trial and that it was essentially a trial that didn't need to be done. In fact, the ethics body in, in central London was fantastic. And when I took the trial to the ethics body, they asked a number of questions. The first one they said is, do we know for sure that angioplasty helps patients? And I said, we don't. And they said, is there potentially a risk to performing angioplasty and putting stents in? And I said, yes, there is a risk, both at the time of the procedure and potentially in the long term. Mm. And then they basically said, so why has this never been done before? And I kind of said, I don't know. And that's why we're here. And so all they wanted was to be sure that patients going into the trial knew exactly what they were getting themselves into. So our patient inf information sheet had to be incredibly thorough. Um, and of course, patients were counseled to the risk of potentially having a placebo procedure and to the fact that many of them may then still opt to have a stent. So that would mean a supplementary procedure that they wouldn't have otherwise had and the extra risk of that. So all of our patients knew that. And ultimately, if you tell patients why they're doing something, explain to them the risks of doing it, I think actually, and you're answering a question that is unanswered, 
ethically that made total sense to our ethics committee and it went through very easily actually with very minor amendments to what we first proposed. And where did the funding come from? So in the end the funding, I mean perhaps Daryl can, he, he moved and sh shook all sorts of things within our department but essentially it was funded internally with money that we had um, within Imperial um, and also the pressure wires were kindly donated to us by um, Volcano Phillips. But well, there was actually at the suggestion of uh, one. So initially, we were funding it internally, and then we nearly wouldn't have been able to complete it. And two things happened that uh, allowed us to do it. One was uh, Professor Sean Harding, of the, uh, who's a basic scientist, mm -hmm. but uh, could see the merit of it, and persuaded a group of academics to provide internal funding for it, which was great. Okay. And then one of the um, grant reviewers who were busy turning it down pointed out that uh, uh, why didn't we just go and get the wires from Volcano? So although they didn't, they didn't give us the grant, uh, at least they gave us a great idea and uh, Phillips Volcano did indeed uh, uh, provide the wires and without that as well we wouldn't have been able to finish. So uh, it was basically one of those miracles that just worked out. Yeah. And so to, to summarise, so single vessel disease, yes. stable patients, yes. good going angina, yeah. yes. um, maximise medical therapy over six weeks, Absolutely. and you then, the patients underwent either a stent to that single mm -hmm. vessel yes. or a sham procedure. Correct. And you didn't find any statistically significant differences in angina relief or exercise time. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. but you did prove that you had treated the stenosis adequately. Yeah. For sure, yes. and you know, the ischemic burden of these patients was certainly reduced, and that may have implications for them in the long term, as yeah. Daryl said, in terms of the ischemia trial. Mm. Um, we should say, um, although sort of on the principal analysis, the yeah. symptoms weren't improved, if people look at the back page of the yeah. appendix, we have favourably coloured in, <laughs> well, I don't know which figure it was, we have, have a look at the green bars, okay. because it's supposed it, to give us the positive feeling, I feel positive, that it's just there is an effect, it just we totally misjudged uh, the size of the effect. And that's why we do experiments. We do experiments for their ability to surprise. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the effect seemed to be there, but the effect size was clearly smaller than we'd expected. Yeah. Um, and in fact, when you look back at Fame 2 and Courage, you see that there is a significant proportion of patients, both in Courage and in Fame 2, who remain symptomatic despite a placebo component to their benefit. Mm. And so we've always known that angioplasty was not 100% curative in terms of symptoms. And it's perhaps even a little bit less than we had kind of expected from the unblinded trials. But yeah. I think the effect is there. Okay. The no, question will really be much more interesting as we look into Orbiter a bit more closely, because when you're preparing a primary analysis, of course you have to stick very rigorously yes. to your primary endpoint. And that makes sense because we don't want everyone going around kind of cutting the cloth depending on what they mm -hmm. found. Having said that, it's almost more interesting to now be allowed the freedom to look at more hypothesis generating analyses and work out which of our patients get the most benefit and also work out if we look at our data in different ways, do we see something that we wouldn't have seen from just looking at it grossly in terms of the primary endpoint. And in fact, um, when people say uh, you guys are unethical because you measured the FFR and then did the angioplasty anyway. Um, uh, please remember that when I designed the study, with Rush and I designed the study, we thought 
the whole thing will be positive and it'll be a slang dump positive and we'll become everyone's best mates because we've proven something that hasn't been proven. And then, but we didn't think that was going to be very interesting. We thought that would be a very dull paper saying angioplasty is actually quite good, but there is an element of placebo. Fair enough. Um, but we thought the interesting thing would be how the response, how much exercise increment you get depends on the FFR. Because people tell me all the time that if FFR is less than 0.8, I have to stent. If it's greater than 0.8, I shouldn't. Well, this is based on FFRs um, greater than 0.75, actually. Uh, if you stent them, you get worse outcomes. If you count the periprocedural infarcts. Okay. Yeah? Which, and that's the only difference between the arms. Meanwhile, when you stent lesions less than 0.8, you have to not count the periprocedural infarcts. And that, again, is the difference between the two groups. And that's the difference in defer and feng too. And we try to explain this to the reviewers, but they seem to be unable to understand that uh, the difference between the trials was not only the different severities of the lesion, but whether you counted or discounted the periprocedural MIs. And um, I was interested in across the spectrum of FFRs, which might go a bit across the FFR 0.8 boundary, is there more exercise time increment um, in the tight lesions? There should be, but how much more? In other words, if you see a lesion that's 0.82, are you totally evil and wrong to be revascularizing it for the sake of symptoms? Um, and uh, are you obliged to revascularize a 0.77, even though it's it's going to be a messy procedure that's going to maybe trash some side branches, etc. So I was trying to provide a bit of a background. So I thought the whole trial would be positive, and I'm looking for this famous, uh, biologically impossible in brackets, cliff effect at 0.8, where there's everyone above gets no benefit, and everyone below gets loads of benefit. Uh, but that plan has suddenly uh, turned to because the overall study was neutral, but I'm relying on Rasha to uh, explore this. Unfortunately, she won't tell me what she's found because she's scared I'll, I'll tweet about it. When you say, are you, so you're planning further analysis on yeah, the data? Yeah, so actually we've completed that analysis already. Um, we've submitted it as a late-breaking clinical trial for ACC and we hope we'll see if it, that gets accepted. If not, it's already going to be, uh, we hopefully have it under review with a major journal, so that will hopefully be out there in March, I hope. Um, and, you know, we have lots of sub-analyses that we're doing. So we're looking at how, whether the burden of stress echo also made a difference in terms of outcomes, whether the burden of disease on angiography made a difference, and also, and it's been suggested a number of times, that perhaps if people are more symptomatic, they gain to have more relief. Now, of course, every sub-analysis has limitations in terms of perhaps power, um, now that we're cutting the cloth in different ways, but the fact that this is the first ever placebo-controlled data, I think will make it interesting to the readers, regardless of any of the potential limitations that may be out there. One of the things I took away from it was really just how good consultant-led medical mm. therapy can be. Now, I don't know how intensive that was for the well, group. I imagine it was fairly intensive. It was intensive for me, because yeah. <laughs> I wanted, was the one doing all the phone yeah, calls. Although it was diplomatically yeah. written, an interventional consultant phoned them, basically, Rasha phoned them, so right. her mobile was red hot. The re people say, oh, Orbiter's stupid because you can't do three phone calls a week, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the only reason we did three phone calls a week is once you... Su so we get people who would be normally a slam-dunk case for angioplasty. And we're asking them, do you mind us not bothering to put a stent 
fiddling about with some medical therapy and then randomizing you to stent or bullshit uh, for a bit. So uh, they, they sign up for this. 63% of people signed up for it, which I think is amazing. Uh, and what you don't want them to do is suddenly come to their senses and say, what am I doing here? Why am I allowing myself to be oh, I mean, fact, So what you want, we wanted to get it all within six weeks, and that's why there were so many calls. It's not because we think clinical practice is um, like that. You know, it is different when a consultant speaks to them, because, of course, if they have side effects, you can counsel them through that, you can tell them to wait a bit longer and the effects may get a bit better. You can be a lot more aggressive with the up titration because, of course, I was happy that I knew from their blood pressure and heart rate that I could keep up titrating these tablets very quickly. Perhaps a clinical research nurse would be a bit more cautious, and in clinical practice, of course, to speak to them two or three times a week would be nigh on impossible. It was interesting, though, because we had a lot of people as we were going through the trial saying that when patients left the trial, they would go into orbital withdrawal because they no longer had their phone calls. And, um, and people were calling it the orbiter love effect Aww. because patients actually really enjoyed being part of the trial, which might be remarkable to people. In fact, tomorrow we have lots of our orbiter patients coming back for a kind of presentation to hear about what happened. Fantastic. And I think the one thing I'd say about clinical research in general is it does clearly subselect patients who are interested in their health and are keen to help. If you're keen to also be part of a trial that may randomise you to a sham or placebo procedure, that probably does select patients who are, you know, they are engaged with their health, but they're also quite altruistic. They're keen to kind of give back. Um, and that, have, having said that, the fact that 63% of the patients we, you know, approached accepted the trial. You know, it means that, in fact, if you counsel patients to why they're there and why it's important, and then if you give them the right care and attention in the trial, I think patients will agree to all sorts of things that we may have thought we cannot study because patients physically wouldn't go through the trial. In fact, I think that's not the case. So in fact, you're we, give, we don't give tomorrow. our patients the credit that we should, really. Yeah. Um, and we're meeting our patients yeah, tomorrow. Meeting tomorrow. There's a party for the mm. orbiter patients and where we'll show the results and discuss well, it, them. I, I think actually the presentation that will be hardest will be now telling many patients who've had stents um, that the efficacy of their stents was maybe not as great as they had expected. It's kind of interesting because that's what, what, not what we expected. Oh Is there going to be um, a, a sudden surge of uh, well, unstable revascularization tomorrow night? <laughs> or people wanting the stent to move. Yeah. <laughs> but I've had some really interesting calls. I mean, I had an, an email from one of my patients this week saying, you know, um, I'm a farmer. I've read the Lancet paper. I've read everything that's out there in the press. Um, you guys put a stent in me. Um, but despite the fact that I didn't feel much better, I feel happier that as I'm out there on the fields, ploughing my fields on my own, yeah. the blood supply to my heart was improved. And Absolutely for many patients, right. that's all they want to know. And that's the end of the first part of this two-part podcast discussing the Orbiter trial. Please join us again in two weeks' time when the second part will be released. And in the meantime, please remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.